My good people, what's happening? What's going on? Is your Monday off to a good start? Are you feeling good going into this final week of September as we head into the last quarter of 2018? I tell you, time just keeps on ticking. It flies by and it doesn't matter what you want to do in this life. You got to make sure to take advantage of that time, prioritize, and get it together. Because if not, it just continues to fly by, especially as you get to my age or, you know. Well, without uh, further ado, this is the J Reels Podcast. If you're wondering what is this podcast, what is J Reels? Does he talk about film? Uh, he's mentioned something about sports. Uh, what is going on here? Well, yes, this is your one-stop sports talk show party where I discuss everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, directed, in full effect. And again, if this is your first time tuning into this pro- uh, program, Thank you very much for stopping by, for downloading, and taking a chance to uh, listen to what it is I have to say. So welcome aboard. And for those who have listened to this rodeo more than one time, thank you very much and welcome back. This is a Monday, September the 24th in the year of our Lord, 2018. Recording this uh, early afternoon. It's been a crazy Monday. Lots going on in sports, of course. We'll uh, kick it off with the NFL, but on the docket for today, you'll hear my thoughts on Tiger Woods. That's right, Tiger Woods, who had a strong couple of PGA tournaments on the Grand Slam scene over the last uh, few months. Well, he wins his first tournament since 2013, and we kind of discussed a few podcasts back when they wrapped up the PGA Tour, where he came in a very close second in that tournament. He kind of wondered what was going to be in store for Tiger Woods moving forward as he continues to build that momentum into next year to start another Grand Slam season. Well, he's continuing to play at a fine clip. We had the Ryder Cup, which is taking place in Paris over the weekend, so you'll get my uh, take on what Tiger may be uh, headed for in the months and hopefully into 2019. We'll also get into the NBA with Jimmy Butler. That's right, he's been the uh, hot topic of the week, considering that uh, a lot's going on in Minnesota where the Timberwolves have re-signed Carl Anthony Towns to a long five-year $190 million contract and we all know Jimmy Butler is going to be a free agent at the end of next year but a lot of talk about trades the owner wants him out and on his list Jimmy Butler that is he's looking at not only the Knicks but also the Nets and possibly the LA Clippers as destination so you'll get my take on Jimmy Butler the player and where he possibly could go or may go in the days and weeks to come if a deal is consummated all the baseball, including the Yankees, who, despite a 5-4 and four homestand, certainly are limping to the finish line to end this season. You'll hear everything of what i got to say about the Bombers. But we'll kick off with the football, and yesterday with the Giants getting their first victory of the year down in Houston against the Texans. And this was certainly a game that the doctor ordered for the G-Men. Although J.J. Watt had a few sacks there, had some pressure on Eli throughout the course of the game, but they were pretty much in control. Eli had a very efficient game through the air, 25 of 29 for 297. I mean, that's as good as it gets, where you kind of wondered in those first couple of weeks, especially the game in Dallas last week, where he was just under siege, it seemed, from the start. Offense was very composed. Before the game, Eric Flowers was relegated to the bench, where Chad Wheeler was promoted. So that was a big uplift as far as the psyche, I'm sure, when it comes to the team. Not to say that they've already sick and tired of Eric Flowers, who knows within that locker room, but considering he has not performed, not just this year, but also 
in the last couple of years, him being a number one pick coming out of the University of Miami. So the Giants certainly righted the ship, had a very effective uh, day through the air. Saquon Barkley chipped in as well with a touchdown run and some yards. Where when you look at Barkley, and I haven't watched a full Giant game start to finish. Unfortunately, I've been pits, you know, bits and pieces in and out, but you could see the ability from a mile away. And when you see him wear that number twenty six as a Steeler fan, it reminds you of another twenty six. And no, it's not Rod Woodson. It's Le'Veon Bell. To me, he's a faster version of Le'Veon Bell. We all know he could catch the ball out of the backfield. We know he's an explosive runner. I think he's even faster than Le'Veon Bell. And remember, Le'Veon Bell, when he came into the league in 2013, he was 6'1 and 240 pounds. 240. Where who knows what kind of shape he's in as far as his weight is concerned. Uh, that, of course, being Le'Veon Bell. But with Saquon Barkley, you know, it's six foot two ten. He runs like a thoroughbred, catches the ball out of the backfield. Obviously, the reason why they picked him at number two is to take this offense to another level. And yesterday, although it didn't have a killer game, but certainly effective, efficient, had that touchdown run like I mentioned, Giants were pretty much in control of this game from the start, even with the Texans getting on the board. But the Giants certainly were able to withstand that. And as I said from the top, if the Giants are going to have a big season, it all is predicated on the quarterback. And you could say that for the other 29 teams in the league. But as we all know, a guy that's can't say he's long in the tooth just yet and number 10 wearing big blue, but we all know at 37 years old, he's just strictly a pocket passer, although he had his moments yesterday, and I was surprised. A couple of rollouts, a little mobility, kind of a game that you've never seen Eli ever play throughout his you know 15-year career, and here he is yesterday making some throws on the run, showing a little bit of that, I'm not going to say escapability by any stretch, but you do not think of Eli Manning as a guy who's going to roll out and try to find a receiver downfield, whether it be 5 yards, 10 yards, even 20 yards, but you kind of got a glimpse of that yesterday with him not being pressured you know, at the point of attack from the defensive linemen or linebackers. So that's a good sign if you're a Giant fan, knowing that if they could add that little wrinkle to their offense, that could certainly go a long way. And the key point of this game to me was at 20-9 to when the Texans were driving their mid-third quarter and they had that huge fumble there, Lamar Miller, as they're, not to say they're going in for the touchdown, they were right outside the red zone, but certainly moving the ball. And Deshaun Watson certainly was also very efficient in the air, did have the big pick later on, which I was going to get to after that fumble, Those two series back-to-back were just killers for the Texans as they tried to get back in the game and making the score. Who knows what that would have been, even if they would have kicked a field goal on that drive where Lamar Miller uh, had fumbled the ball, let's say 20-12. to It's a whole different ball game because as the Texans were moving the ball down the field again, and I understand that throw there, questionable from a Deshaun Watson, but give credit to Alec Ogletree who made it just a great play on that ball. You know, just falling back into the end zone, making the interception was pretty much, I'm not going to say ice the game, but you knew as a Giant fan that things were going your way when the Texans weren't able to punch it in the end zone and therefore make any threat to the Giants not securing their first victory of the year. And in a nutshell, that's pretty much the game. Now, I know you're going to look at Evan Engram being out week to week here with that MCL. So that's one guy who also, he had a you know very effective game there yesterday. That's one guy you're certainly going to miss. Sterling Shepard had a big day on the, uh, on the field, making a ton of catches. 
and this was the first time you got to see this giant offense. Well, you want to say clicking on all cylinders? Maybe not to that degree, but certainly, as I said, the glimpses, you see the talent that's oozing from this offense. You know, Week one, of course, was tough going against that Jacksonville defense, and things seemed to be a little bit off kilter. Last week, they were pretty much going uphill from the start against the Cowboys, and obviously we know about what happened there with the offensive line. But as far as this particular scenario going down to Houston, and they knew they had to win this game. Because we know what the schedule lies ahead for this giant team. You know, they got New Orleans coming into their building next week, which isn't going to be an easy task. And New Orleans won a huge game on the road in Atlanta there yesterday. They have Carolina, who is 2-1 and one, off to a good start. The Eagles, with Carson Wentz back, also at 2-1. and one. They have a schedule over the course of these next four weeks that are certainly going to be challenging, to say the least. And we've talked about that over the last two weeks. So getting this victory under the belt was enormous. And even though New Orleans, granted it's going to be the last Sunday in September, but we all know New Orleans does not have that same style, does not have that same type of game that they do when they play indoors, whether it's in the Superdome or even in some of the other places that they play indoors. Yesterday at Mercedes-Benz down in Atlanta. So if you're the Giants right now, you're certainly pumped. You're certainly happy that you got back in the win column. You'll come home after two games on the road against a very good New Orleans offense. The defense, I'm sure they're going to be licking their chops to look at the film and see what they could attack because the Saints have certainly not played well here in this early going. I know last week against the Browns, they only gave up, what was it, 18 points and six on that fourth and five there, pretty much Hail Mary toward the end of the regulation against Cleveland. But giving up 48 at home week one and then 37 yesterday to Atlanta, I'm sure the Giants, Pat Shermer and company are certainly looking to see what they can exploit there and try to continue to pile up the points on that same defense and try to get back to two and two there, not only in the NFC East, but of course in the conference, which is, we all know, is just very stocked and very loaded and it's going to be very competitive in the NFC for playoff position, which is very you know too early to talk about. Still got a ways to go. We're not even a quarter in. After next week, we could start to focus in on that. But we all know once you get past week eight, week nine, the picture will be a lot more clearer as to who are going to be the top dogs in the NFC, let alone the NFC East, and moving forward. So uh, certainly plenty of football to be played, and the Giants, again, get themselves back in the win column with a pretty decisive victory, despite the fact the score was close. We all know the Texans got that touchdown. They were one second to the left was cosmetic. But a very good road victory for the Giants as they uh, march ahead to a matchup with the Saints this coming Sunday at MetLife. Now we turn our attention to the Jets, and they certainly didn't favor on the win side this past week. And I understand if you're a Jet fan you're going to look at this game and say what could have been. And it's a typical type of Jet game when you look at it from the standpoint that they had a 14-0 lead in the second quarter, and everything's going well. You feel as if, all right, we got this game in control, game in hand, things should be fine against an opponent that hasn't won in almost two years. But you always know in the back of your head there's always going to be something. There's going to be that one play. There's going to be that one moment. There's going to be something that's going to turn this game around and upside down. And sure enough, that happened to be 
in the name of Baker Mayfield. The Jets certainly contain Tyrod Taylor. Now, we all know Tyrod Taylor can be a threat. He's a guy that, if you've watched him over the years, especially in Buffalo, uh, has a good arm, not accurate. Certainly can make plays with his feet. We all know he's the type of quarterback that could uh, kill you with the run. But when you put it all together, he's a guy that's mistake-prone, very ineffective, very inconsistent, and pretty much what you've seen, despite the fact that the Browns have been competitive in those first two games of the season, the Browns certainly looked at the way their offense was going, and it took for him to get out of the game in concussion protocol to bring in their prized number one overall pick in the aforementioned Baker Mayfield. And now you had the contest, which was turned at 14-3, where you have the number one pick overall going up against the number three pick overall in this game. Now, of course, it didn't start out that way, as we know, but when you see what happened after that, and you kind of look to the coach and you wonder where was the game plan if and when the possibility of Mayfield coming into this game, there wasn't one. And it was a shame because Mayfield was making throws all over the field, showing his arm, was certainly efficient through the air as he got his team back in the game. And even as you looked at the score there in the fourth quarter, and at 17-14, even after they came back and they did their own Cleveland-Philly special, whatever you want to call it, for... The Jet fan, I'm sure sitting at home, even with that field goal going through 17-14, you think to yourself, all right, what's going to happen here that's going to spoil this game? And sure enough, what you see from Mayfield, showing the leadership, showing that he had control of the huddle, him going down the field, punching it in the end zone with a little over two minutes to go, and right away you're thinking, okay, this is typical Jets. I've seen this movie before. This is how it's going to end. But then you say, wait a minute. This is the time where Sam Donald could shine and get his first ever fourth quarter comeback in the National Football League in only the third game of his career. Well, it certainly didn't start out that way. He got himself into some trouble to a point where he had to convert on a fourth and ten, in which he did over the middle. And even at that point, you thought to yourself, I'm sure, that, hey, Maybe he's going to be able to pull this out. He still had a ways to go down the field. But then just a play later, under pressure, trying to make a play. We all know as rookies, he's going to try to force something there. He does not want to get sacked. When you throw it in the middle of the field the way he did, gets picked off by Joe Schobert, and that was just the beginning of the end. Now the Jets were able to get the ball back, considering how all three of their timeouts. They did do so. Donald... Ends up making a play. They get a first down, but he had to take a shot downfield. That ends up being intercepted. And the Jets fall to the Browns. Uh, what could you say? It's Bedlam in Cleveland. Brown fans going nuts. Everybody's getting their Bud Lights, trying to break in through those uh, beer lockers. And if you're a Jet fan, you just have your tail between your legs on a short but rough flight home. And you think about what could have been in this game where the Jets, if somehow, some way, they were able to make a play, make a stop, could have been 2-1, and one, and the talk would have been a lot different going into this week where the Jets have to go to Jacksonville, of all places, for their next game. And what you take out of this game, if you're the Jets, 
Isaiah Crowell's antics aside, which was deplorable. I mean, you know, I understand he's a former Brown. He's trying to show up his former team, former fans of his, or whatever it may be. The Jets lost this game, in my mind, by not making some key stops on third down. You can't put this all on Darnold. He's a, he's a baby. I mean, it's his third game. You can't expect miracles. I understand the Jeff fans are going to say, well, look at what Baker Mayfield did. To me, it has a lot to do with coaching. Because it's almost as if they had all the tape. And I understand they have very little tape on Mayfield, whatever you could get out of the preseason. And we all know that's not much. But it never occurred to them that, okay, there could be a possibility if Taylor stinks to bed or if he gets hurt as he did in this game that Mayfield could come in and all he did was just pitch and catch all over the lot. What was he, 17 for 23 in this game? And when you have a guy that's coming in for the very first time in the National Football League and he's down by two touchdowns, to have that happen, and again, we know the Jets aren't 100% on defense, you know, no Marcus May. We get that they don't have much of a pass rush. But they certainly weren't able to get the job done to try to forget about even stop this guy, but even slow him down to the point where they could still had a grasp, they still had control of this game, but they just let him come right back down the field. Nah, it wasn't every drive, of course, but at key points of the game. And it's discouraging because you know that this team is on the up and up, and you want to see improvement. You know, if this was the other way around, if the Jets were down 14 nothing and they scratched and clawed, and they lost the 21-17 game, you could say, hey, hey, they fought back. They rallied the troops. They didn't fold their tents and got to the airport and flew home. It'd be a lot more encouraging if that was the case, but it's a lot discouraging because this is a game, for all intents and purposes, you should have won. And I know it's tough because as a Jet fan, you look at this game on the schedule, you say, this is a game that we should win or even borderline have to win. And not because this team hadn't won in 635 days or whatever it was, but when you look at the schedule, you look at games, okay, as much as you can't take it for granted, but you can say to yourself, all right, Cleveland, that should be a win. You know, that should be a victory. And I get that maybe on the other side, Cleveland probably looks at the schedule and says, well, hey, the Jets, they're playing a rookie quarterback. We have a good defense. That's a game that we should win. So I could see where it goes both ways. But again, we're not talking about it from the Cleveland perspective. It's more from the New York perspective. And especially when you had a lead. And granted, it's only second quarter. I understand they didn't have a 14-point lead with seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter. And then they gagged it. And next thing you know, the Browns are victorious. All right, I get that too. There was still plenty of football to be played. But again, not being able to make key stops. Not being able to slow the momentum of Baker Mayfield. And not only that, but not being able to execute and make plays on the offensive end is what burned the Jets here. And this is what happens when you have a young team with a young quarterback to go through these growing pains. You're going to see this. Remember, people, it's not as if the Jets are going to, you know, go 9-7 and or 10-6 and and make the postseason. You know, this wasn't the year where, oh, they're going to take that next step. Yeah, you want to see them take a step, 5-11 and the last two years, I understand 6-10 and 10 is a baby step compared to the last two years, but guess what? With your prize possession at quarterback finally in the mix and being able to put that young defense to work, try to find the mix of the veteran players and leadership on the team, 
and all of the Jermaine Curses of the world, the Bilal Powells who's been here for quite some time, to kind of have that stepping stone to build for 2019 and then possibly 2020, making that leap and bound, that quantum leap to the top of the AFC. You know, it's going to be a process. And I kind of hate to throw that word out there because in this day and age, everything is about the process. Trust the process. Oh, it's a process. We get that. But with this Jet team, as much as you are excited and as much as you're anticipating what can be for this team down the road, but that's exactly where it's going to be, down the road. To have that immediate success where a lot of quarterbacks in this league we've seen over the years have come in and done a fantastic job. You know, whether Joe Flacco was rookie year, even Matt Ryan when they both came out in 2008. Although it was a small sample size, but last year, you see what Deshaun Watson did before he got injured. You know, so there are quarterbacks that have come in and have certainly planted the seed in the NFL to say, hey, I'm going to be a big part of not only my team, but this league for years to come. And with Darnold, you know, it's, it remains to be seen. You know, Carson Wentz, another guy, before he got hurt last year. But he was on his way to winning an MVP with the Eagles. So it's not as if, as much as we want that instant gratification to get that guy who's going to lead us to the promised land to happen overnight or in two or three weeks or half a season or a full season. No, it doesn't happen that way. You're always going to have those bumps, bruises, pains, whatever it may be, before you get to that mountaintop or anywhere near that mountaintop, for that matter. So the Jets, one and two, pretty much about what you expect because nobody expected them to go to Detroit and win 48-17 the way they did. So it would have been nice to have gotten that Miami game. We all know what happened there. And then you look at what happened Thursday night. And fortunate, unfortunately, those are the breaks. And as far as the rest of the league is concerned, I mean, week in and week out, you cannot predict this stuff. I mean, this is just, it's mind-boggling to think that one team could look like world beaters or one team could just be as awful and worst team in the league, and next thing you know, they come out of nowhere and win these games. And the two teams that come to mind right off the bat are the Buffalo Bills and the Detroit Lions because they both started their seasons as probably as worse as you could possibly even imagine. And then here they are, both teams at 0-2, Buffalo going to Minnesota, which in that new building, tough to play against that defense. What did they do? They almost put the shutout. And not just a 10 nothing, 13 nothing. No, 27 nothing. this team was leading pretty much the whole game. The Vikings did tack on a touchdown late. I know the numbers look nice if you're Kirk Cousins. What is he, 40 for 55 for almost 300 yards. But one touchdown, one interception, Certainly not the game, and not that any of their fans could have imagined that the Bills would just walk in there. Josh Allen, you finally seen for the first time, you know, make his uh, claim to be up in the ranks of the quarterbacks that I mentioned when we talked about the Jets and the Browns. And Buffalo just wins in convincing fashion, twenty-seven to six, which to me was the shock of the day. And right behind it was what you saw last night in Detroit, Matt Patricia, the debacle there Monday night two weeks ago. Last week, losing in San Francisco, 30-27, to a game a little bit closer, obviously, or a lot closer than the first go-around against the Jets, but still, and you're thinking the ship is sinking out there, 
players are not liking Patricia, the attitude, whatever it may be. And I understand they had a lot to play for as players, considering he was going up against his former teacher and Bill Belichick. But the Lions certainly laid the wood on the New England Patriots. Brady was, you look at those numbers and geez, you would think it was one of the rookie quarterbacks that was starting for the Patriots yesterday. So they were inspired and they rallied around their coach. I'm sure they wanted to win that for him and rightfully so. And they did it in resounding fashion, 26 to 10. And I know all the talk right now is going to be, oh boy, here we go. This is the end of the Patriots. This is the end of the dynasty. Here's the, here it is. Let's relax, people. Although you have a fascinating game in Foxborough on Sunday where the Miami Dolphins, 3-0, and one of the few undefeated teams in the league who beat Oakland yesterday, 28-20. to That's going to be a game a lot of people are going to look at, and for both reasons. They're going to look to see if the Pats are going to go 1-3, and which the last time that happened, I can't even remember. you got to probably go back to the 90s. And could the Dolphins go 4-0 and really put a stranglehold on that division here in the first month of the season, which would be unbelievable. You're going to ask me who's going to, I think the Pats are going to destroy him because this is the type of game where the Patriots, and I don't think they overlooked, I know people are going to talk about oh, it's a trap game. I don't think so. Obviously, Patricia and their crew, I'm, I'm sure they wanted it more and they knew that their season, who knows where it could have gone from this game and who knows where it could still go. You know, next week they could go, who do they play next week? They're in Dallas. And next thing you know, it could be 28-6 Cowboys. And not that the Dallas is, you know, the Cowboys are lighting the world on fire, but you get the drift. But that game, Miami at New England this coming Sunday is going to be, I think, a game to circle to see what's going to happen, not only with each team. Can Miami make that leap 4-0 and put a three-and-a-half game stranglehold on the division? But at the same time, a 1-3 New England team, which we have not seen in quite some time, would certainly be very interesting if it does shake down that way. And I understand a lot of the talk also over the weekend was Gronkowski. There was already a trade package uh, for him to go to Detroit. He turned that down. He said he only wanted to play New England. He only wanted to play for Tom Brady. A lot of the rumors in the offseason were that he was going to retire if he were to be traded. And we all know that there was a lot of trade talk in reference to Gronk, but the closest of him being shipped out of Foxborough was to be to Detroit with the former defensive coordinator of the Patriots and Matt Patricia. As we all know, that didn't happen. So that was some uh, news coming out of uh, both camps, uh, especially in New England this past weekend. Uh, I talked about Miami-Oakland. We all know Oakland's going to have a long season, as it is. And Miami 3-0, and uh, they suffered a tough injury on defense. William Hayes, one of their pass rushers, uh, out for the year at ACL, and he actually tore it. Get ready for this. In the you can't make it up file, he tore his ACL, making a sack, but he contorted his body to a point where he didn't want to put all of his force, all of his weight on him because, as we all know, this year that is a 15-yard personal foul where Clay Matthews can attest, and I'll get to that in a minute. But right, just trying to make a sack, but not trying to put all of his weight on the quarterback on Derek Carr, he tore his knee, didn't get the penalty, got the sack, but he's out for the rest of the year. So talk about insult to injury, or in this case, he did get the sack, but it was a very costly one at that, knowing that he'll be on the shelf for the rest of the year. But the Dolphins, like I said, off to a great start. 
uh, 3-0, and and the Raiders looks like uh, oof, it's going to be some tough sledding out in the bay uh, for the uh, Raiders. Now, I'll get to uh, Green Bay, who lost in Washington yesterday. The Redskins, who after losing that, uh, or after winning in Arizona and then losing to the Colts last week, they bounced back in a big way against the Green Bay Packers. And Packers showing some chinks in the armor there. I know story again, Clay Matthews. I didn't mention this on last week's podcast, which is my error. I got my hand raised very high, where he got that personal foul, where Kirk Cousins had that interception. And next thing you know, it looked like the... Vikings were going to go on to a, or I should say the Packers were going to go on to a victory, but hold the fort, personal foul, roughing the passer. I, I don't even know how you can call this in this day and age, but I get they want to protect the quarterbacks and they want to have, uh, it's just a brutal, it's a brutal rule. That's all there is to it, to the point where Clay Matthews is saying that the league is getting soft. He's right. I'm sorry. The way these sacks are coming, when you have a guy, and I understand you're not going to pick the guy up and slam him to the ground, or you're not going to forcefully get that sack where you're going to pin him to the ground. But if you're going shoulder first, not leading with the crown of your helmet, the ball is being released as the player is lunging into the quarterback's body. And what is he supposed to do at that point? I mean, it's not as if he could tackle and then roll right off of him. You know, it's not as if he could go ahead and try to hold up or just lean with the shoulder and then by gravity just try to cut left or cut right. Look what happened to William Hayes in the game against the Raiders that I just mentioned a few minutes ago. What are you supposed to do? To me, if it's egregious, yes, make the call. I know they like to refer to the game and – the 2001 AFC Championship with, or 2000, I think that's the 2000 year, Baltimore at Oakland when Tony Siragusa sacked Rich Gannon. And we all know Siragusa is a big man, but yeah, he pretty much sacked him, lifted him off the ground, and just drove him into the turf. You do that, that's 15 yards. I get that. But if you're literally going to wrap him leading in with your shoulder and you go to the ground, that happened in the Cowboy game also early on where... Um, Trying to think who the player was. It wasn't Demarcus Lawrence or Taco Charlton. Uh, he'll come to me. But yeah, similar play. Led with his shoulder. Perfect form. We all know that that lineman had to be 6'3", 6'4". We all know Russell Wilson's 5'10", 5'11". But yeah, called a personal foul. Kept the drive moving. Could have been a three and out. But instead, they moved the chains and away we go. I mean, it's just a brutal rule. But the uh, Packers certainly... Uh, now looking at 1-1-1. One, one, and one. Interesting how that division, right? After the game last week, you have these now Chicago Bears to get to them winning in Arizona. And we all know Arizona's going to have a tough time winning some games this year, although you had a Josh Rosen sighting, but it was too little too late. Who would have thought that even after three weeks that the Bears, who could be 3-0, and remember they had that 20-0 lead against Green Bay in the first half of the first game on Sunday night, but they lead the division at 2-1. and one, And you have both the Vikings and Packers losing. I'm more so Vikings and Packers, but games that certainly going in, you would think that they would have won, but they didn't. And the NFC North is certainly going to be a logjam, you would think, from here on out, this, depending on what happens, especially in Chicago. If Trubisky and Matt Nagy and company could certainly continue to ride this wave and uh, just play consistent football. 
All right, I'm going to get to uh, two games before I get to Kansas City because I have a very interesting point about the Chiefs. Uh, I mentioned New Orleans and Atlanta. That was a shootout, high-scoring affair. We all thought there was going to be another tie. As a matter of fact, when I saw it was 37-37 with about, what was it, uh, three minutes to go, I'm thinking to myself, oh, no, is this going to be another tie three straight weeks in a row? Wasn't the case. Drew Brees, who down 37-30, gets the touchdown rush, had thrown for three scores, and then in overtime was able to break the plane of the goal line to win the game deep into the overtime. 43-37, very good win on the road. 2-1, bounced back nicely. Atlanta, that's a tough loss at home. They're now 1-2. and And with Carolina winning yesterday against the Bengals, although Dalton threw up some big numbers, but he also threw four interceptions. The Carolina Panthers now 2-1, so of course their tops are tied with Atlanta there for second place. Because remember, the Buccaneers of Tampa, 2-0, one of the undefeated teams, they played tonight against Pittsburgh, which of course, big game for the Steelers and a lot of drama circling around them, which I'll get to there. Them in a little bit, in particular, Le'Veon Bell. And then the other game is uh, Jacksonville losing at home to Tennessee in a field goal uh, ridden game, defensive this, this reminded me of the old AFC Central. Remember when both Jacksonville and Tennessee were in the AFC Central? Yeah. Well, now you're going back into the 80s and 90s. Well, really in the 90s because Jacksonville came in 95. But for that time frame between 95 and 2001 before they realigned the divisions in the NFL, that six-year span, you had a lot of these types of games between Tennessee and Jacksonville. Remember, in 99, they had the three games in uh, one year where Jacksonville was 14-2. and two playing in an AFC Championship game at home against the Tennessee Titans. And the Titans had beaten them in the title game, 33-14, to go to the Super Bowl where they lost to the Rams. But to think, Jacksonville had three losses that whole year, and they were all to Tennessee. So that's how far back that division goes. But of course, now within the AFC South, Tennessee bouncing back nicely. Remember, they lost week one to Miami. But now with two division wins in their pocket. Mike Vrabel certainly looking pretty good there, despite the fact that, hey, they're not winning pretty, but they're winning, and that's all that matters. And when you get those division wins, especially on the road, those are enormous. So big up to uh, Tennessee for the uh, road win in Jacksonville. And then you had the Battle of L.A. between the Rams and Chargers. Rams winning that one, 35-23. Rams, like I said, they're going to be a juggernaut. But the one thing I want, and I've said this during the preview, the one thing I worry about the Rams they could be a front-running team, especially on defense. We all know the players that are on defense. Big egos, big contracts, big players, all pro-type players. But you wonder, in a big game against a big team, and they got a big one there Thursday night where Minnesota's coming to town. You know they're going to be ready to go after what happened there yesterday against the Bills. And Minnesota, I'm sorry, with the Rams, I mean, they're just clicking off 30 points as if you know they're in their sleep. You know, 33 against... The Raiders there Monday night to open up the season, 34 against Arizona, and now 35. So look at that, just going up the ladder in the 30s to start off their year. And we all know the Rams are looking at a big season ahead, and the Chargers now 1-2 and two here in this young season. Uh, I'm going to get to, let's get to New Kansas City. I was going to say New England. We already talked about New England. So I can wrap up this NFL so I can move on to other things. Kansas City, I'm going to throw some cold water on the Chiefs. That's right, cold water. And people are going to say, Jay Reels, come on. Kansas City's playing great. Pat Mahomes, 13 touchdowns in the first three games. Nobody's done it. Not even Peyton Manning. Nobody. And he had six touchdowns against your team. He embarrassed your defense. Please, 
what is it that you're going to say that's going to throw cold water on the Chief fan or on the Chiefs here after three weeks when you look at Pat Mahomes if the season ended after three weeks, he'd be the MVP. 38-27, San Francisco. We all know this is in the San Francisco defense a few years ago. We all know that the Kansas City Chiefs have gotten off to hot starts like this. Remember last year, they were 5-0. and And they were running roughshod over everybody. Remember, opening night against the Patriots after they won a Super Bowl. They scored 41 against them. And we all know the talent is there. I mean, it goes without saying. Defensively, they have talent on defense, but remember, they lost Marcus Peters. He's in L.A. now with the Rams. So their secondary isn't what it once was. And Eric Berry, of course, has been hurt. So despite the fact that they could put up points as good as anyone in this league, the two things that worry about me, if you're a, or three things. One is the defense. Two, the quarterback's not going to continue to put up these numbers. And if he does, God bless him. And good for him. He'll be the MVP of the league, but we all know it's not a matter of what he does in a regular season. Yeah, and we get that you build your resume in a regular season and try to get home field and the top two seeds or even a one seed. We get that. But yeah, let's see this against a big-time defense. And I understand there's not a lot of big-time defense in the NFL. The two that come to mind, Jacksonville and Minnesota. And there's a couple others out there that I'm sure would certainly be adept to trying to slow down this high-powered offense. But the third thing, and the most important, so again, defense, quarterback, I got to see this more than three games, and I got to see it in a big spot, and I got to see it in a cold weather game too, and it gets cold in Kansas City. And that's not a knock on a kid. It's just, again, it's a small sample size. And lastly is the coach. Because we all know Andy Reid, going back to his days in Philly, but okay, you want to say, oh, that was back in Philly? All right, well, let's talk about his Kansas City coaching days. Blew a 38-10 lead against Indianapolis in a playoff game. Look, can we talk about the game last year against Tennessee where they had no right losing that game after being up 21-3? Let's just go there. Let, let's just lay it all out on the line and just talk about that game. And remember, this team started off 5-0 and last year until Pittsburgh went in there and beat them. And they were 10-6 and and hosted a wild card game against Tennessee. And what happened? Titans won. So I don't trust this head coach as much as, as far as I can throw him. And if you're a Chief fan... I'm sure you're jumping up and down, grins and giggles, life is good, everything's great. But if you're dying the wool, and I don't know any Chief fans, I've never met a Chief fan in my life. But let's face it, I'm sure you're looking at this start and saying, you know, I've seen this movie before. And that's not to say they're going to go right in the tank. That's not to say they're going to get off to this hot start and then all of a sudden cool off and then hang off with their life. It's not as if that, you know, they're not going to have big aspirations, big plans, but I'm sure the Dying a little chief fan in the back of their mind is saying, let's pump the brakes. And you know what? If you're that type of chief fan, God bless you for it. Because I need to see this in December and more importantly in January because nobody will remember this hot start by Mahomes if all of a sudden they start losing or if they start, you know, Mahomes all of a sudden now becomes Cinderella and the clock has struck 12. And we're just getting started with him. And he's... Put on an amazing display. No ifs, ands, buts, maybes about it. But can we just chill out with all the acclaim and the praise? And that's the thing that I can't stand. That everybody right away, when they look at the hot start they got off to, and you look at them and you say to yourself, wow, these guys are world beaters. I can't see them losing another game. Well, guess what? I don't know what week it is. I got to look and see. And let me think. The game, hmm. Off the top of my head, the game may be in 
L.A., but they do play the Rams on a schedule this year. Let me see that game. If they go to L.A. and they put up 38 against them, win or lose, then I'll say, okay, the offense is for real. And I'm not trying to say, and there's an offense, there's a defense that I hadn't talked about. When I talked about Minnesota and I talked about Jacksonville, the Ram defense. And we all know the names on the defense. And again, you can't just base it on the names, but when you look at the back of their football cards or you go to football reference and you see the all pros and you see pro bowls and you see guys that have won rings, then that's it. Let's see what they could do against this type of offense. And that's somewhere down the road. I'll look that up and talk about that in the weeks to come. But I'm sure that game is going to be on the horizon because remember, AFC West is playing the NFC West. So they got the Rams on their schedule at some point down the road. Just keep that in mind. And pretty much just to wrap these games up before I get to baseball and a couple other things before we say goodbye. Uh, let's see. We talked about Jed. Talked about that. Oh, Philly and Indy. That was a game where the Colts actually had a chance at the end. They were knocking on the door. First and goal down four. Uh, Luck got sacked on fourth down, which was a tough break for them. That would have been a great road win for Indy. Carson Wentz's his first game back. Show, you know, he did throw a pick, but uh, certainly did not show a lot of rust. Had a very good game, very effective as the Eagles get back in the win column after losing in Tampa Bay 20-16, and the Colts let victory slip right through their hands as they had a good chance to take the lead there and uh, certainly would have been at least a three-point lead. Who knows what it would have been after that because there was still some time on the clock, but the Colts uh, squander a good opportunity there at Lincoln Financial as the Eagles win 20-16. And what else do I have here? Oh, in Dallas and Seattle, the Cowboys, I know a lot of it was on Ezekiel Elliott. He was the one that put up his hand and said, this game is on me, my fault. I you know, shouldn't have gotten to this point. He had that big fumble there on that long run. Uh, watched bits and pieces of this game. Didn't watch it on a whole. Cowboys, uh, they have no receivers. And I've read some reports or read some articles about, is this the best we'll ever see of Dak Prescott? He's putting up paltry numbers on offense. Hasn't really... Done the job. I understand, you know, people are going to look back at the game last week. He had that 64-yard touchdown pass, but that was pretty much it as far as any big plays through the air. Uh, listen, they don't have weapons. You know, it's not as if Des Bryant or Jason Witten's going to walk through that door anytime soon. And, you know, Tavon Austin, you know, he's a guy that you're going to do a lot of those jet sweeps. And, yeah, you hope that every now and again he'll break that big play like he did in the Giant game last week. But you can't expect much from a guy like that because he's more of a – He's more of a type of player who's, you know, is very unique and you're only going to use him for a particular skill set. You know, he's not going to be a guy that's third and nine. You got to move to change. You're going to take, you know, the ball's going right to him. You know, he's not that type of receiver. So the Cowboys, I understand you look at that game yesterday and you say to yourself, geez, you know, Seattle was 0-2 on the ropes. You know, we should have, you know, gone in there and got a victory. Well, you know, the Cowboys and the Seahawks are pretty much right there, you know, neck and neck. You know, Cowboys aren't that much better than the Seahawks, and the Seahawks aren't that much better than the Cowboys. But tough loss for the Cowboys as as is because, as we all know, as the season continues to fold, especially for the Cowboy fan, they just want to know whether or not Jason Garrett's going to be around any longer. And for all intents and purposes, with the way Jerry Jones speaks, yes, it's sure looking like the clapper, as some people like to call him, Jason Garrett, is uh, certainly going to be around for quite some time. So that's your uh, NFL. And quickly, tonight, it's a huge game for the Steelers tonight as they play Tampa. And I thought about coming on uh, or delaying this podcast till tomorrow, but I said, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. 
if anything, I'll recap it next week where the Steelers play the Ravens Sunday night. So that's going to be a very fascinating game. But they certainly cannot look ahead. It's the last thing they want to do. But I will say this about the whole Le'Veon Bell situation. The big question is, what are they getting back in return? Are they getting 100 cents on the dollar? Are they getting 75 cents on the dollar, 50 cents on the dollar, and so on? I understand if you're the Steeler front office, you want to get something back. You certainly don't want to settle. You know, you're know, you not getting a fifth-round pick back like when they traded Santonio Holmes to the Jets many years ago. I'm sure they're going to ask for ones, and rightfully so, because we all know the type of talent Le'Veon Bell is. That's 100, that's 100 cents on the dollar. 75 cents on the dollar will be a two and three. And then three or four to five is pretty much 50 cents on the dollar because we all know with draft picks, you don't know what you get. Even if they get a top pick from a team that's middle of the pack where maybe they're going to draft in the first round somewhere in the teens. But if you're the Steelers right now, and we all know that this has really come to a head, and me as a Steelers fan, lifelong, I said this a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to say it again right now. Trade him. Get what you can. I'm not trying to say get him for a bag of footballs. I'm not trying to say to get him for 50 cents on a dollar. Try to get as much as you can. You're not going to get two ones. This is not going to be Camille, uh, Khalil Mack Part 2 or 2.0. This is a situation where you still hold all the cards. There's no need to trade him right away. The trade deadline's not even for another few, I guess four or five weeks. I know they pushed up the trade deadline to sometime in October, maybe mid to late October. So it's not as if you have to rush to get him off your team. And I understand that the circus is still going to continue the longer this is going to get talked about, especially if the Steelers lose. Because if James Conner goes out tonight and he has a 12-carry, 37-yard performance, and the Steelers lose... 27-17, all the talk is going to be about, oh, they need Le'Veon in the mix. Le'Veon, Le'Veon, Le'Veon. And you only hope that the front office, which has remained stout throughout its history, will continue to do so and hopefully not let this be a distraction because as much as they want to get rid of a guy like this, knowing that he's not going to come back, that he's looking to plan to sit out the whole year, which is only hurting him. But with that being said, they know that they can't, rush to pull the trigger on something just for the sake of pulling the trigger. I understand it can engulf a locker room. I understand it can even divide a locker room. But if the guy's not there, what, where's the division? That's the bottom line. So how I look at it is, is that if they are fielding offers, if they're looking at it like, okay, let's see what's out there. Let's see what we can get. Be patient. It'd even be nice. You rarely hear this where the owners are going to converse with the players on this, but It'd be nice to say, hey, we're talking, but that's it. There isn't a deadline. There isn't a rush. None of that. Unless the GM, Kevin Colbert, is going to come out and say that. Remains to be seen. But you got to get rid of him. You don't have to get rid of him tomorrow. You don't have to get rid of him next week. Get rid of him when you feel that the deal is right. And even if this team continues to struggle, the guy's not there. All that focus should be out, and that's where Tomlin comes in. Because as I said during the NFL preview, this was not a big year. This was an enormous year for Mike Tomlin. With everything that transpired last year, obviously the way that playoff game went, the defense, his coaching, everything. Now it's going to be front and center, especially if they lose tonight. I don't care if they win 3-2 to tonight. A win is a win. Don't throw those back. We all know that. 
But it's going to be very interesting to see how this team's going to come out of this. Hopefully they come out with a win tonight. Then they go ahead to a game against the Ravens. It'll be Ravens week, short week. It's going to be tough. But first things first. Get the win tonight. Block out all the noise. The guy's not there. He's on jet skis and album release parties in Miami. Let him continue to do that. That's fine. Let him. Because obviously he's losing $855,000 a week by not playing, not showing up. And if he feels that's right for him, then fine. And if the Steelers are able to get a suitor, who knows? A running back goes down. A team wants to try to get to that next level and hopefully trade for him. And mind you, if they do have a deal in place and they make a trade, whichever team that is, that team that gets him, obviously they can't sign him. So it's not as if they're going to make a the whole NBA sign and trade where they trade the player and they can sign. No, 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 that's not going to happen. So they're going to be at risk as well, the other team. So this isn't going to be a very easy, smooth deal. But sadly, this is what's, uh, that's what's happening in Steeltown. But first things first, the game tonight in Tampa, and that's your week three. And real quick with the games this week, there are fascinating games abound in the NFL. For a week four, you have the Thursday night game between the Vikings and Rams. Excellent game. Sunday, you have Cincinnati and Atlanta. Good game. If Tampa wins tonight, 3-0 against 2-1 Chicago. Miami, New England, we talked about. The Sunday night game, Baltimore and Pittsburgh. Obviously a good game. And then Monday night, you have Kansas City and Denver which is going to be a fascinating game because Kansas City has always had tough times. They've won more recently, but playing in that mile high, always a tough game for any team to play, but especially division team Kansas City. Uh, that's going to be a, an interesting test to the Chiefs as they go into mile high against the Broncos, who lost yesterday to Baltimore. That's one game I forgot to mention. So the Ravens were able to get Baltimore, uh, were able to get the, excuse me, the Broncos, their first loss of the season, 27-14, was the score down there. And that's pretty much your week three recap in the National Football League here on the J-Rose Podcast. All right, now to my Yankee fans. Are you getting close to the edge there? Are you looking for the nearest bridge? Well, you have every right to do that, considering that this weekend against the Orioles, you could have lost that series. Can't say you could have got swept, because even though they came back in the game on Friday night, we had the big lead, but you went to extra innings on Saturday, and then Sunday... You had a guy that uh, certainly once upon a time was a big prospect in Beckham, hit a couple of home runs off you and a lineup where you couldn't even name two Orioles, let alone the Orioles at the beginning of the year. You know, obviously with Manny Machado long gone, Jonathan Scope, Zach Britton, who's now a Yankee, this AAA version of the Baltimore Orioles almost came in and won two out of three after winning Five out of nine, five and four on a homestand, which included two wins over the Red Sox. Although the last game, the Red Sox were able to capture the AL East pennant. I'm sure it's been tough sledding here over the last, let's face it, two months. You have not played crisp baseball. You have been very inconsistent. The team has not performed well. And now you have Didi on the shelf. And who knows if you're going to have him. Chances are you may not even have him for the postseason game, which I always thought was next Tuesday, which would be October 2nd. The game is actually on the 3rd. Because if you look at recent history, a lot of the American League wildcard games have been Tuesday, where the National League is on Wednesday. They must have flip-flopped that this year, 
All you got to do is just think back over these last few years. Last year, the game was on a Tuesday when they played Minnesota. When the Yankees played the Houston Astros in 2015, that game was also on a Tuesday. So this year, they must have switched it up with the NL playing the first wildcard game Tuesday and the American League follows the following night. But I said it last week, and shockingly, as great as the season has been, and you're 95 and 60. So it's not as if you're wallowing in mediocrity or somewhere along the lines where you're like at 83 wins and you got to get to 88. No, that is not the case. You're going to have a season where you're probably going to get anywhere between 98 to 100 wins. Any other year, you would have been first place in the division, resting comfortably to find out who you're going to play in that division series round, especially if you had the top seed overall, which generally 100 wins will get you that. And now you're looking at these final seven games where you're going to Tampa, and Tampa has stumbled here. I know they're mathematically alive, but they got to run the table, and Oakland has to lose all their games. So that just goes to show you what they have left in the tank. But they've lost some brutal games here down the stretch of the Rays. And listen, they've been playing phenomenal baseball. They've played the Yankees well this year, especially down there in that ballpark where the Yankees will be for the next four nights. But it's certainly not looking as high and mighty as it once did and with all the concerns that I've mentioned from weeks past, whether it's who do you start in the wild card game? Is it going to be Tanaka? Is it going to be Severino? <laughs> Jay Happ, who's actually had a very good go of it since the trade from Toronto right before the deadline. You're looking at Stanton, who has literally been a invisible man at the plate here, especially after he finally got his 300th career home run. I think he's only hit one home run in the last month. You know, Sanchez is still having his troubles behind the plate as he did in that Red Sox series. I didn't really follow a lot of what happened over the weekend. I know Didi got hurt where you got to wonder whether or not he's going to be able to participate and come back in the next, uh, what is it, eight days, eight days from today? Or really nine days because, again, the game is going to be on Wednesday. Like I mentioned, who's going to start in that game on the wild card night, which the chance is going to be Oakland coming to Yankee Stadium. I don't think the Yankees, when you look at their schedule, despite the fact that it's Tampa and Boston on the road and Oakland has to go on the road to Seattle and Anaheim. And they have had some tough times against those opponents this year. So I would think it's going to serve as is the Yankees are going to be hosting a week from this coming Wednesday. And we'll certainly talk all about it next Monday. We'll have it breaking that. We'll break it down for you. We'll have it all from pillow to post, all the analysis, whatever it may be in regards to that game. But the Yankees, they are certainly treading water. They are running on fumes. If you thought they were running out of gas going into last week's show, they are literally on fumes now. And all they want to do is secure that wild card. You wonder how Boone's going to play it these next few nights. Is he going to be pedal the metal, or is he going to certainly call off the dogs knowing that he has a game and a half lead into the wild card for the top spot to host that home game. And if I'm him, you got to play that sucker until it's official. You can't be screwing around with weird bullpen matchups. And I understand Chapman came back and he was awful. A lot of people thought he maybe came in early in that game, the night where the uh, Red Sox clinched in the final game of that series against the Red Sox. But... You certainly have to play these games 
as if your life is on the line. And I would think, let's say for argument's sake, they win two of the first three down in Tampa, and then Oakland stubs their toe and they lose two, and they have, let's say, whatever it is at that point, it'll be, I guess, a a three-and-a-half game lead. You have to go ahead and play this until it's official because you'll have the weekend in Boston, and we all know the Red Sox, they're going to rest everybody. I'm sure they're going to play you know, Mookie Betts. They're going to get him some at-bats, and they're going to have him start some games. They may not have him finish. But the point of the matter is, is that you don't want to take the pedal off the metal here even once you clinch because you certainly, you're not going to know what you're going to get come next week. And I understand that a lot of teams could say that. You could say, well, Jay Reels, huh? The Red Sox, they could win 108 games, but you know you don't know who's going to perform come Division Series time. Well, we, we know that, but at the same time, the Red Sox haven't struggled all year. The Red Sox have been a model of consistency and obviously have been the best team in the sport up until this point in the regular season. We all know it's October, which is critical, and what everybody's going to look at. But if you're the Yankees and the way you've played in the last two months, and despite all the firepower that you may have, and despite the fact that you have guys that you would trust a la Judge, Didi, we don't know if he's coming back. We can't trust Stanton. Another guy you, you could trust in a lineup. When you think about it, if he's going to be playing, it's going to be Gardner. You know, McCutcheon's going to get another taste of the postseason that he did back in 2012 and 13, even 14 for that matter, and 15 too, because they, they've been in the postseason all those years. So this team right now, unlike last year when you went in, even nervous, not knowing if you're going to get past the Twins, although you've been dominant against the Twins over these years, but this was going to be their first taste, especially this Yankee core. And now, with an unforeseen DD in the lineup, Judge, who is trying to get back into the swing of things, Sanchez, who has been a lost cause the whole year, Stanton is going to get his first taste of the postseason. God forbid he goes 0 for 4 with three strikeouts. He's going to get booed out of New York. And Tanaka, I think you probably trust more. I would think to give the ball to Severino. I get that he's been subpar this second half of the year. He's pitched, I believe, a 6 ERA. But he's a guy that's your horse. He brought you here. And I get Tanaka is a guy that in the postseason last year, certainly with the money on the line, put it where his mouth was and has actually pitched pretty well here down the stretch. So you're thinking about giving the ball to him. You can't be, you can't look at that and say, oh, geez, that's the wrong move. Me, you got to go with the hot hand. All right, take Tanaka. And then you can sit, you know, hopefully save Severino for game one of the division series. And then you'll get two cracks at it. I think that'd be the smart move. I know that as much as I'd probably want to have Severino at that game to pitch against the A's, I think it'd be wise to put Tanaka there because I think he's more made for that type of game. So I changed my tune on that four or five weeks ago and I said, no, no, you got to put Severino there because he's been the guy, he's been your horse. Well, guess what? If he's pitching to a 6 ERA, how do you expect him to go out there seven innings, one run, three hit ball, strike out 11? Against an A's team that, you know, obviously they've done it all year long and we all know good pitching could stop good hitting. We get that. But they're going to be feisty. They're going to be scrappy. 
They're the type of team that, although they have some power in that lineup, are certainly a team that plays smart. You know, they're not looking for the three-run home run every time up. They're not looking for the big swing. They're a team that's more situational, that's going to be more timely. That's what they're going to bank on. So, you got to look at these next seven games of this regular season, not to see who gets hot, not to see who's going to be the guy that's going to carry the load into the wild card game. You just only hope that whenever these guys play, not that they got to judge has to have a four for four or Sanchez has to go three for four, two home runs. No, you just want to see good at bats. And you just want to see effort because you figure if they're putting good bats along, you know, they're getting some hard outs. They're getting some tough outs, whatever it may be. Just good defense behind them. Tip your cap. You just don't want to see ninth inning, down 4-3, runner on third, less than two out. Sanchez coming up and he's just flailing at pitches in the dirt. Or Stanton, you know, popping up into the infield at a key spot in the game. We understand you're not going to get a base hit all the time. You're not going to get that clutch hit. But again, it's just making that good call, getting good at bats. You know, if Stanton has a 9-10 pitch at bat and strikes out, you live with that. You don't want him being at 0-2, 1-2, and then that's it. He's walking back to the dugout. You want to see that 8-9 pitch at bat. You want to see those Gardner at bats because those are the type of bats that not only can wear on a pitcher, but certainly becomes an advantage to the hitter because you've seen pretty much everything he's thrown. You just don't want to go up there trying to be the hero, get the long ball, or get the big hit, let the game come to you when you let that moment get away from you. And the next thing you know, as I said, you're slowly meandering back to the dugout. And who knows? Into the offseason. So, that I mean, that's pretty much where you're at. And the Yankees, like I said, Weeks ago, knowing even after when they got swept by the Red Sox in Boston, that was in early August. But knowing that this two month stretch was pretty much you're gonna they weren't gonna play for much. Yes, you knew they were a lot to be in the postseason, and yeah, despite the fact that the A's late August into September were on an express train to the top position in the wild card in the American League, but the Yankees have, let's face it, they've been in cruise control. Now it's just a matter of them trying to get a collective unit that's in this funk and has their injuries and is going to have another guy on the shelf. I got to check to see what the latest is on Didi. But it doesn't look like he's going to be playing in that game as of, as of today. We all know a lot could happen between now and then. And obviously when I come back on the air next Monday, I'll have a much better clue. Or we'll all have a much better clue and idea as to him playing in that game. But all you can do is just hope that the Yankees somehow, some way, and even if they don't, let's say they go three and four on this trip. Can the games be competitive? I mean, because when you look at what happened over the week against the Orioles, I mean, the Orioles, they had a, I mean, they were up eight to two or whatever it was. And I can't even remember off the top of my head. And then next thing you know, I turn around the game's eight, seven. This is the Orioles. And then they win 10, eight. And then on Saturday, it's tooth and nail to win an extra innings, 3-2. to two. I guess the Orioles, the team has 110 losses. And then yesterday, they lose. All right, the Orioles got to win sometime. But, you know, it sounds as if the Yankees pound them 11-0 and 
7-1, and then, all right, they lose a game yesterday. You can say, all right, well, hey, that happened. So the bottom line with the Yankees is that they just need to put together good at-bats, good pitching, not look like they're sleepwalking through these games, somehow, some way, despite the record. If they go 2-5 and five this week or they go 5-2 and two, or 6-1, and one, whatever it may be, as long as they're putting together crisp, consistent baseball and not what you've seen in the last two months, then who knows? Maybe they could turn it around, get on the long postseason run that a lot of Yankee fans have hoped and expected, considering what happened last year on the heels of a deep postseason in 2017. And as we all know, you just got to get in it. And we get it. The Yankees could go 0-7 down the stretch here. And as long as they win that one game against Oakland, they'll go up to Boston feeling a lot better. And I know Red Sox fans, the last thing they want to see is the Yankees in Fenway on that first game of the DS. What would that be? Uh, Thursday. Or uh, Friday, I should say. Get my day straight. And quickly, with the rest of the uh, Major League Baseball landscape, starting to tighten up here. Uh, but the National League, I tell you, man, it's uh, certainly going to go down to the wire, especially in the Central, because you have division races there. The Cubs currently have a two-and-a-half game lead over the, Bra- uh, the Braves. I'm thinking Milwaukee Braves. The Brewers... And four and a half over the Cardinals. Now, the Cardinals play the Cubs over the weekend, but the Cardinals have the toughest stretch here, and they could certainly go into the postseason riding high or maybe just flatline altogether, depending on how the next seven days go. Because the Cardinals are at, no, as a matter of fact, they are hosting the Brewers for three games, and then they go to Wrigley Field for three over the weekend. Now, mind you, the Cubs could have everything wrapped up by then. So who knows who they'll play, and I'm sure they want to get their rotation set for the postseason. But again, those are going to be some very tough games, and I'm sure the Cardinal fan would want to do whatever it takes to knock out, well, the Cub fan would want to do whatever it takes to knock out the Cardinals and their fans. So certainly keep our eye on that. They have the most challenging schedule out of everybody left in the National League that's in contention. Uh, the Cubs, they have four against the Pirates here before the Cardinals come into town to end their season. The Brewers host the Tigers in the final interleague series. So they got the uh, one team with the distinction to have the Tigers come in to clean up the rest of their 2018 schedule. And then out west, you have the Dodgers and Rockies, where the Dodgers currently have a game and a half lead over the Rockies. The Dodgers go to Arizona and San Francisco to end their year, and Arizona certainly has fallen flat in their face over the last month and change. And the Rockies will be hosting the Phillies and Nationals to close out their year. And the Phillies, again, kind of like the Diamondbacks have certainly just fallen on hard times here this uh, last six weeks of the season. And you would think the Cubs will be fine. When you look at the wild card, Colorado's a game and a half behind St. Louis. And again, Colorado has games at home and St. Louis has a tough schedule. So if Colorado could pretty much do what they need to do, figure, hey, four and two, I don't know if it's going to cut it. Because do you expect St. Louis to go 2-4? and four? It's possible. I mean, the schedule is tricky. But obviously 4-2 and two, and they go 2-4, and four, that's certainly going to help. That's going to probably draw them even as far as the wild card's concerned. Then you'll have a playing game to then face the Brewers in the wild card, which would be fascinating. But I would think St. Louis, even with that lead and the tough schedule, that's what's going to make it interesting here uh, as far as the wild card's concerned. 
You would think the Dodgers, although going on the road but playing those two teams, they would hold off Colorado. So I would think Colorado has more of a shot to win the wild card than they would the division. Although I'm certain that they're going and they're going to be gunning to try to get that division crown because they certainly want to not host or not go on the road just like they did last year. Remember, they were the road team in the wild card game when they went to Arizona and they lost 8-5, to five, I believe. So they certainly don't want to repeat that performance the second year going. Although wild card teams on the road have certainly fared well in the wild card era, I think the road team is seven and five in the wild card game. So although it bodes well, but you certainly want to host the game or host the series, the division series at home, you certainly don't want to have to go play the wild card winner on the road or the wild card, the number one top spot in the wild card, and then have to go into a series. Uh, pretty much what that's what Arizona did last year. Remember, they got swept by the Dodgers, but. Be that as it may, not to get back into wild card history. As much as Colorado is going to be looking forward to trying to see if they can upend the NL West and get that crown, it's going to be tough considering the Dodgers have easy opponents. And Colorado, even with the games at home against Philly and Washington, they certainly, I would think, would hope that St. Louis, with the tougher schedule, will stub their toe a couple of times along the way and see if they could get that wild card spot, which they would travel to Milwaukee to play the Brewers in the wild card game. So. Still plenty of baseball to chew at. And then, of course, City Field's going to be nostalgic and there are going to be a lot of faces at the ballpark there Saturday night to see David Wright's last game. You would think Jose Reyes will play short in that penultimate game of the season. And we'll just see how that goes. We would think that David Wright may have some pitch hitting appearances over the course of the next three to four days. The Mets start their final homestand tomorrow against the Atlanta Braves for three, and then the Marlins coming for three, and that will be it for 2018. And I'm not going to talk about the Mets. As, what is else to talk about? Yeah, they played well. They were 5-5 five five on the road trip. They won three out of four in Washington. All right. That's it. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Jump for joy? Certainly not the case. We all know the type of season the Mets have had, and we'll certainly break it all down, especially as it gets to the offseason. More so at the end of the baseball season, meaning the end of the you know, World Series. But uh, we would certainly take a look back a little bit to see where this team will be moving forward come next week on the program. So Met fans will certainly will regroup one last time, kind of see where the dust settles, and then uh, speculate on what could take place over the course of the next few months. I'm not going to say weeks because we got to get through a World Series first and then all the awards, and we all know about Jacob deGrom, but uh, we certainly have to... Uh, get through all that before we could really get into the teeth with the hot stove and all that, but that's uh, certainly plenty of time ahead of us, and uh, we'll certainly take a look at it in the uh, weeks and months to come. All right, two last things before I uh, bid adieu here on the j podcast. A lot of talk about Jimmy Butler as we turn our attention to the NBA. A lot of the training camps open today, which, believe it or not, it's listen, hockey's going to open up in about 10 days. Maybe even less than that. I don't even know when the hockey season is going to start, which is a disgrace because I should know that. Even though the Islanders, we all know John Tavares in his first game as a Leaf, even though it was in an exhibition game, scored two goals. So we know what lies ahead for the Maple Leafs, and they have visions of deep playoff runs dancing in their heads where the Islanders are just trying to scratch and claw just to be of any relevance, not only in this town but in the league, where losing your best player certainly doesn't help that matter. But with the basketball going to... 
Jimmy Butler. A lot of talk about him wanting out of Minnesota. I know there may be a rift between some of the players there, the players that are going to be there long term. Uh, you heard some reports about Andrew Wiggins and his camp. Supposedly there's a, a little beef with Jimmy Butler. As I said at the top, Carl Anthony Towns signs a big Supermax deal, five years, $190 million. So we all know he's the face of the franchise. He wasn't going to go anywhere. And now with Butler, despite the fact that he's in with Coach Tom Thibodeau from his days at the Chicago Bulls, it looks like they, those days are certainly on the short list and soon to be numbered where the owner, Glenn Taylor, has says, I want to get this guy out of here. I'm sure he's looking at it from a culture standpoint. It's going to be interesting to see how that owner-slash-coach relationship is moving forward, especially if Jimmy Butler is to be jettisoned somewhere. And the list of teams that he put, Butler that is, are the Clippers, the Knicks, and the Nets. Now, I'm going to say this about Butler. I got nothing personal against him. He's a good player, very solid player, solid defender. We all know that. He is not a max player. That's just cut to the chase. He is not a max player. He's a guy that's more of a two. He's not even a 1A, if you ask me. He's a two bona fide on a good team. And if you want to make him out to be the big three, as we all know over the years, that's been the moniker that a lot of these teams, going back to the Celtics with Pierce Allen and Garnett, we all know LeBron going to Miami and all the other teams that have tried to emulate those big threes. If he was a big three on a big team, he'd be number three. That's all there is to it. I know when all the rumors of Butler last year going to the Celtics, I didn't want him. Again, he's a good player. It's not to knock him. It's not as he's a bad player. It's not as he's a bad bad locker room guy. No, none of that. He's a guy that's 29 years old. He's going into his walk year, and obviously he's going to want a boatload of money. And, of course, he looks at teams like the Clippers that are going to have a boatload of money. The Nets, where they could sign two max players, and the Knicks that could sign one max player after this year, of course, his destinations for him to jumpstart or, I should say, maybe even rejuvenate his career, which has started off slow, then ended up going high. Now it's hit this lull, so he's making noise to kind of put himself out there to say, yeah, I want to go to these teams because I know not only they're going to have money, but, hey, they could, you know, there's going to be some good talent in these places, whether it's Porzingis here once he's on the mend and 100% with the Knicks or the Nets with D'Angelo Russell, Jared Allen, and, of course, the two max slots that they'll have going into free agency for next summer. And the Clippers, pretty much the same deal. If I'm the Knicks, or even the Nets, I understand that you have players, especially for the Nets, I'll start with them. If they have two slots, you want to put one of them on Butler, fine. But the second guy you're bringing in has to be somebody that's bigger than Butler. You can't have another guy that you're going to pay a ton of money that's going to be below him. And, you know, I'm not in NBA mode, so I can't really think of who that would be. But here's just a great case in point. Not that the Nets would do this, because if they have their point guard in D'Angelo Russell, why would they bring in a guy like Kyrie Irving? But if they're going to bring Irving as the number one guy, then Butler would be the number two. Then you can look at their backcourt and say, oh, wow, they could put that with Jared Allen. And off you go. Not to say Allen's going to be the next Tim Duncan, but he's a guy that has some promise, a guy that could finish around the basket has some presence, protect the rim, and you move forward with a player like that. As far as the Knicks are concerned, yes, you have the guy in Porzingis. When healthy, he'll be the guy that will fit the bill as far as being that number one player. Do you bring in a guy like Jimmy Butler there? Eh, that's how I look at it. 
is eh. To me, Butler's not the guy. He's not the main guy that's going to bring you that championship that you've been dying for since 1973 if you're a Knicks fan. If you're the Knicks, you don't want to trade any of your picks. Same for the Nets. You just came off the disastrous Paul Pierce-Kevin Garnett trade. Now you, you want to start recouping your number one picks. You certainly don't want to start giving them up for a guy like, and again, a guy who's a number two on a good team and a number three on a great team. And that's all there is to it. And the Knicks, you don't want to trade number one picks. You know, you don't want to start trading, oh, we'll give Nilakina and no, 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 no. You're trying to rebuild here. Yes, I understand you want to start putting pieces to this puzzle together where you have your nucleus and now you want to bring in a guy that's going to push you closer to the mountaintop than just stay in purgatory. Because if I'm a Knicks fan, yeah, would Jimmy Butler make my team better? Yes. Is it going to make it that much better where they're going to be championship material? No way. And that's the same for the Nets. And I think more so for the Nets than the Knicks because at least the Knicks have that player in the fold. Well, the Nets don't. And I get that you could say, well, hey, that's why we have to get a guy like Jimmy Butler. Well, yeah, again, Butler isn't a top 15 player in the league. Kyrie Irving is. Kawhi Leonard, when his head's on straight and healthy, he's a top 15 player and he's a free agent. You're going to have to go after guys like that? I understand that. Jimmy Butler? Not so much. That's just me. I understand other people may beg to differ. Oh, your nuts, Jay Reels. Butler's average this. He's been an all-star. He's all defensive. I, and right. And I'm not not I'm not saying he's a terrible player or he's a bad player. He's a guy that, you know, he's not a glue guy. He's not going to fit in. No. But if you're going to push all your chips to the middle of the table, as I like to say, and think that Jimmy Butler is the final piece to a playoff berth in the East or take it to the next level and maybe get to a second or third round in the Eastern Conference – I, to me, you're sadly mistaken. Not happening one bit. And I'm sure a lot of questions are going to be asked about that with camps opening up throughout the league. I think the Knicks and Nets both open today, and I'm sure in talking to Scott Perry and Steve Mills and or the Knicks and Kenny Atkinson, the coach, and Sean Marks, the GM, and I'm sure they're going to want to wax poetic about wanting to be better and so on and so forth, but of course they're not going to name names. No tampering involved. And they're just going to go with what they have. But if I'm both the Knicks and Nets, I wouldn't touch them. For all the reasons I just mentioned. And that's pretty much it. Nothing against the guy, nothing against the player. And He's a glue guy, he is. But what, you want to be a 6, 7, or 8 seed? Make it to the first round and then out? And then pretty much be that type of team for years to come? Or do you want to be a team that's going to make a mark? And you could say, oh, hey, there's no LeBron anymore. We're going to have to worry about Cleveland. Yeah, right, but you still got to worry about Boston. You still got to worry about Philly. Who knows if Milwaukee's going to be on a come up with Giannis another year into the league. Toronto's going to be good. All right, so you want to be 5, 6, 7, or 8, or you want to try to squeeze into that top four? There's your difference. And lastly, a one Eldrick Tiger Woods, who won a championship yesterday, the tour championship, which was not a major, was nothing to get amped up about when it talked about the annals of majors and the situation of Tiger chasing Jack Nicholas. But it was a big step for golf yesterday because when you look at the trajectory of his 
last couple of months and how he's played at the British and how he played at the PGA and just coming oh so close on both days, more so the PGA than the British. And then here he is on the Tour Championship winning the way he did, going up against the Rory Rory McIlroy's of the world and him holding up his arms, tapping in that par putt on birdie, uh, par putt on 18 to close out the tournament. It made you think that if Tiger isn't in 2000 to 2008 form, which we'll never see again, but if Tiger is back where he could actually be a threat, this could be it. We saw him after the last putt where he was humbled. You could tell like he looked like he probably even wanted to sob where he had his hand over the bill of his cap as he walked away to go to his caddy and hug it out. And when you see that type of expression, that type of emotion, we know the air of Tiger back in the 2000s, that's long gone. I don't think that's ever going to come back. And if it does, that's going to be a sports story that's going to linger for quite some time. But we can't expect that, considering everything he's been through, and not just all the -the off-the-court stuff, but just all the injuries and all the setbacks and all the cuts that he didn't make and all the you know pluses the overs that he had on a lot of these tournaments but for him to build moving forward and he had the Ryder Cup this coming weekend in Paris and Ryder Cup we all know it's more it's not an individual event you know it's more of a group event countries etc but you wonder with the way he's finishing here, and granted there's going to be that little lull once you get past the Ryder Cup and you go into the holiday season and you get to early January where a lot of the tournaments will start up in Arizona and California, etc. You wonder if this momentum will continue to build into next year to the point where when he gets to the Masters, will it be at its peak? And I'm talking about not him at its peak, I'm talking about the momentum and how he'll be able to withstand that. Because we know we could deal with the pressure. We know he could deal with the spotlight, the moment. It's never going to be too bright or too big. He's going to handle it a lot differently now than he did a decade, decade and a half ago. But at the same time, you just hope that there's enough juice that what's gone on here in the last two, three months that will carry over into next year. And I think I may have said that after the Open, but I'll say it again, only because he's got this. Now he's finally got a tournament in his back pocket. The first one since 2013. He had not won a tournament in five years. Tiger Woods. And here it is, now as we're days away from the Ryder Cup, and I know that a lot of the talk's going to be about Tiger going into that. And even if he falls flat on his face, you're going to know that that was a tournament that's different from all the other ones that he's played this year. That he's going to go into next year, I'm sure, a much stronger outlook, better outlook, knowing that he could play and go up against these guys. And he's not doing it in a tournament in January and then he falls off the face of the earth and then in July he pops up and does well at the you know at the PGA or the British and then here he is at the PGA and he does fairly well no he's shown some consistency here and granted it's a small sample size but this is a sample size we haven't seen from Tiger in years so you kind of wonder is the mojo back And I know I said it at the end of the British. It's like, ah, we can't say just yet, but it's getting there. And at the end of the Open, knowing he was that close on 15, he had to, you know, 
tied at the top of the leaderboard for it to just slip away. And you're saying, well, you know, he could be building something here. And now, again, I understand it's not a major. It's his 80th win on the tour. Second most to Sam Snead. I think Sam Snead 82. And who knows? That could be something he's going to gun for. He may not even look at the majors off the top of the off the top of your head. We all know the majors is the standard of excellence when it comes to golf. But you know what? Maybe he just wants to get to 82. Maybe even 83. And if it just so happens it falls in Augusta or falls wherever the U.S. Open is next year or the British or the PGA, then so be it. And I would like to see him win that major, that elusive 15th major, because the last time we saw him lift that trophy was more than 10 years ago. And it's going to go on 11. But for the sport, and more so for him, I think it would be just absolute. It's It's been a story as it is to begin with, but it's kind of flown under the radar because of the NFL and because it wasn't a major tournament. But it's already put on notice. He's finally won a tournament in a half decade. Now, let's see if he could take that into next year, which I think he could. Because now, I'm sure a little bit of that mojo's back. Again, not the mojo that we once saw that on Sundays he just dominated. And if they, he was neck and neck with somebody or a stroke ahead or a stroke behind, that he would just obliterate him. I don't know about that mojo, but the mojo knowing that, hey, I can hang with these guys. I'm healthy. I'm raring to go. I'm enjoying the game. It's fun. And at the same time, he's humbled. Could certainly go a long way for Tiger, but Again, that's why we watch these matches. Like we say, that's why they play the game. And uh, we'll see what happens this coming weekend with the Ryder. And obviously, when we go into next year, once the tournaments start kicking up once again. All right, I was a uh, try to jam it all in in a tidy hour and 15. But of course, had to stretch it out. A lot to discuss, a lot to get into, a lot to squeeze in. But I appreciate your patience. I appreciate you listening, downloading everything. People, it goes without saying how much. Uh, it means a lot to me for you to not only listen to the program, but also share this with whomever loves sports, likes sports, tried and true, just like I am. That's why I'm here, to deliver everything that's going on in the world of sports each and every week here on the J-Reels Podcast. Please, subscribe. Google, uh, it's not Google Podcasts, not Google Play. Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please do so. Leave a rating. Post a review whatever it may be, because again, as I've said time and time again, the more it gets out there, the more that it gets reviewed, the more that it gets liked, the more, excuse me, stars that I get, it will gain more visibility in the sports podcast universe and therefore generate a lot of interest. So hopefully down the road that will also peak when it comes to guests. And if you're wondering, well, how does that have to do with guests? Well, if it's ranked in the top 20 or it's up there as far as sports podcasts concerned, then a lot of people want to hear more about it. And of course, word of mouth is what's happening despite the fact I may have a website. But again, when you're an independent outfit like I am, hosting, writing, producing, editing this program, you know, I wear a lot of hats. So obviously your help would certainly assist in that. And uh, once again, I greatly appreciate it. You can check out all my social media sites on Instagram, JReels, Twitter, JReels1, JReels Podcast on Facebook. My email is thejreelspodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, uh, I'm open to hear whatever it is that you have to say. And uh, don't forget the website, www.jreels.com, for anything. My bio, stuff about me, about the program. Uh, also, archive shows, which, of course, you could get on your whatever podcast that you subscribe to. But at the same time, uh, of course, the website has all that uh, information there and any other information regarding the show. 
So with that being said, people, as I like to say each and every week, from the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J-Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.